When Marshall Shore first moved to Phoenix a little over 21 years ago, he was told that Arizona had no LGBT plus history. But every time I would go for an adventure, whether it was on foot, on bike, in a car, it didn't matter where I was going, I kept running into amazing people, places, and stories. And through this, he got his famous moniker. So about 2009, I started doing Arizona history. And for Centennial, um, when they had the big thing at the Capitol, they had a huge stage, all these different presenters um, and things like that. And so one of the staff at that point was trying to describe me to someone else who was confusing me with Marshall Tremble, who is the official state historian, because we shared the same first name. And she was like, oh, he's the hip historian. And I immediately shot back, thank you, I am stealing that. That will forever be my name now. Marshall Shore, Arizona's hip historian, is the project manager for the LGBT plus history project and worked with Arizona State University on creating an archive of the community. Named after activist Harleen B.J. Budd, the LGBT archive has documents dating back to the 1960s up until today's modern era. So when a Valley 101 listener asked about the icons in Arizona's LGBT plus history, producers Amanda Luberto and Keith Reed met with Marshall at Songbird Coffee and Tea House in downtown Phoenix to hear more. Phoenix didn't have a scene like New York, Los Angeles, or San Francisco. So surely there was nothing to look for in its past, right? I ran into that again and again, and I'm like, well, there's got to be something because we've been here for quite a while. So there's got to be uh, traces of that left. On a trip to Provincetown, Massachusetts, a longtime safe space for the LGBT plus community, he was flipping through a 1950s muscle magazine in a junk shop when he saw an advertisement for an artist based in Phoenix. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so that was like the first thing that's like, okay, there's a history that people aren't talking about. This was George Quaintance. He was a famous American artist who is known for creating masculine and strong depictions of men. He helped establish the idea of what a macho man looked like with his homoerotic drawings of the male figure and is considered a pioneer in the gay art aesthetic. Quaintance's art was published in a Toshin book, an L.A.-based art publishing company and a high honor in the art world, and even spent time as a hair artist. He would draw celebrities and what their hair should look like and then have a team create the hair based on his drawings. Marshall described him as a jack-of-all-trades. He actually relocated here in the early 50s and developed this penchant for painting half-naked cowboys, kind of this mythos of the West. I mean, he had been an art director doing, um, I would say, some blue magazines from France and things like that. And then started, he was also art director for a lot of those muscle magazines. But his work never went on public display because it went from him directly to um, collectors. Because at that point, you could, you could be thrown in jail, as other artists were in L.A. and New York, were thrown in jail for basically crossing state lines with pornography. He was a trailblazer and a major figure in the history of homosexual art with a connection to Phoenix dating back to the 1950s. We asked Marshall if this was the earliest sign of LGBT plus history in Arizona that his research had shown. Um, the first written record we've really found was Nikolai Duralin, and that was surely by accident. Nikolai moved from Russia to Chicago in the 1890s 
got a stable government job, and got married. However, his flirtatious nature and penchant for chorus girls led him to get a divorce and married a chorus girl named Anna Davidson. And from there, he contracts tuberculosis. And that's a big piece of Arizona's past is where people would come here because, unlike today, we were known for our clean air. So when they got here, he was actually living in a boarding house. He survived for a few months, but then passed away. And when they're ready for burial, they discover that Nikolai was a woman. That's right. Nikolai was born a woman, but lived as a man. When this was discovered, Nikolai was buried in a dress in Greenwood Cemetery near downtown Phoenix with no headstone. And it wasn't because he didn't have means for a headstone. That wasn't the issue. Um, I think that it was probably more trying to just kind of squelch the story. And so as soon as I found that out, I was like, oh my gosh, we've got to do something. Marshall, alongside the Arizona Trans Alliance, worked for two years on getting him a headstone. And now you can visit a described gender pioneer in Phoenix history with a gravestone identifying them by who they lived as, Nikolai Duralin. Marshall also told us that someone had reached out to him because they were writing a book about Nikolai's boss in Chicago, heard more about Nikolai's story, and has now written a book about Nikolai. It's the first book on a trans person from Russia. While Nikolai's story is the first to go viral out of Phoenix, people in Arizona identified outside of the gender binary long before that. I now identify as a proud Navajo, two-spirit, transgender woman. Meet Trudy Jackson, an indigenous advocate and scholar. She was the first openly trans, two-spirit woman to run for president of the Navajo Nation back in 2018. Two-spirit is an umbrella term used by Native communities to describe people who fulfill a third gender role in their culture. I asked Trudy how far back the term goes. Has two-spirit been an idea in this country for a long time, or is it more modern? She said the label of two-spirit started around the 1990s, but the idea of being outside of the gender binary has a more complicated past. After speaking with elders that identify as two-spirit, and learning about the history, learning about the impact of colonialism and Christianity and federal Indian policies, how the social construct of gender binary was pushed upon Native communities. Prior to colonization, Natives did not view gender as um, male or female. It was basically based on what you contribute over to the community. It's not that before the 1990s, Native people only identified as male or female. Trudy explained that before the westernization of Native communities, gender labels just weren't really a thing. But also, one thing to note is that Two-Spirit has been around long before the LGBT movement, long before Stonewall riots. And one of my justifications to that is prior to colonization, gender did not exist. She said that as younger generations move into urban areas, they possibly could come across terminology that is unfamiliar, and she encourages them to be open-minded for diversity. 
but she also believes it's important to bring the conversation back to the reservation and enlighten and empower your people. In my research, I had seen some people using makeup or clothing to alter their appearance to signify them being two-spirit. And I asked Trudy if this was something that she did. With me is being my authentic self. I believe that your, your inner spirit portrays who you are. And I think physical appearance, altering appearance is to one's decision. But I, for myself, I present myself. But first and foremost is I identify myself first as um, Navajo and with my four clans. That's how I identify myself first. And then after that comes the um, Western um, terminologies as, as a two-spirit transgender Navajo woman. Trudy was very clear that the identification of two-spirit is not interchangeable with LGBT+. This is very specific and personal to Native communities. One of the things that's very interesting um, within tribal communities is how federal Indian policies has really impacted tribal communities. Because now individuals um, basically is like, you're Indian based on your blood quantum. And that's a federal Indian policy that was originated by the federal government. And I think individuals who identify as two-spirit and being native, it's, to me, it's like, you don't really have to prove yourself. If you're native and you speak your language and you are connected to your traditions and your culture and your ceremonies, why would someone question? But on the other hand, there's a lot of individuals that want to be Indian, that want to be, that want to identify as two-spirit. I recall one time hearing a two-spirit elder share with a non-native because they wanted to, to identify as two-spirit. And basically the elder said, you guys already have your own terminology, the LGBT. We have our own. Don't continue to take from us from what the federal government has done to us. This is us and this is them. This is who we are and this is how we identify. There's even more history here in Arizona. Did you know that the transgender flag was created in Arizona in 1999? Yes, it was. And the creator is Monica Helms. Here's Marshall to tell her story. So she had been chatting with the guy who had designed the bi flag. And so she was like, well, then I'm going to do a trans flag. And so that's exactly what she did. And now she gets to see that flag internationally represented which I think is really cool that it started right here. The flag that she made is now at the Smithsonian Museum. Marshall beamed when he told us this fact and said the flag is valuable for the culture and community. 
Part of LGBT plus history has always been inextricably intertwined with community building and safe spaces. We actually had a couple bars in Tucson um, and a bar here called Case Happy Landing, which was, as far as we can tell, is really the first bar we can find in print. Kay's Happy Landing was one of Arizona's first gay bars. It was operated by Kay Elledge and her girlfriend Violet Brand. When Violet's husband died in World War II, she used the death gratuity to open a bar, like a true queen. The bar served a largely underground lesbian population until the 1960s. But then it would have been the outskirts of town, um, and it was just a little tiny room. You had to go upstairs to get there, but that's where you could hang out. While the bar had a rich history, not many photos have been found of the two of them, aside from one that Marshall unearthed at a department store. Violet was even more fascinating than we previously thought. She was a partner in crime with a familiar icon named George Quaintance, who we talked about earlier in this episode. I um, found out that actually Violet, his girlfriend, and George Quaintance were good friends and would hang out and run around in town to achieve each other. So that was kind of fun, finding that connection. There was also another bar that is iconic and legendary in the Phoenix scene. The 307 Lounge was located in the Fruit Loop, which was an area of town you would go to to find a gentleman friend. The lounge was widely seen as a haven for the community and was a place where people could truly be themselves. The 307 Lounge was active from the late 1930s through the new millennium. The original address was 307 East Roosevelt, where the lounge got its name. In the early 1950s, that building caught fire, so the bar moved to 222 East Roosevelt. We love a building with a flair for dramatics. The community went to these bars because they couldn't safely be themselves openly. Dating back to the 1950s, local historians said that the police would often arrest people who were wearing their drag during the day. Those arrested were often outed as a result and feared that their names would be published. Those jailed were given two evils, jail time or skipping town. But the consequences often reached farther than that. In June 1969, the Stonewall Riots, where the New York Police Department raided a known gay bar, acted as a catalyst that brought the LGBT plus rights movement into the national conversation. During this time, Phoenix was experiencing its own raids. This led people to throw house parties instead. Invitations were given by word of mouth, which included a vetting process. But eventually, police raided these parties as well. Through hardship, Phoenix and Arizona at large saw their communities come together to support and protect each other. The community kind of, kind of really coming together really around HIV AIDS. Um, it was for me, um, kind of the wake up call was I had access to all these periodicals from the 70s through the 90s and flipping through them and really noticing that it's like there was this really rich, vibrant community it was like, hey, you know, we're holding bingo in someone's backyard as a fundraiser for this. You know, someone else is having a barbecue in their backyard. And so it was really these small community events. And for me, there was really this great network. Um, then you wind up with folks like Kirk Baxter, who really kind of come and really looking at body positive of really kind of developing some of those first HIV AIDS organizations that are still around now with different names, but really kind of that same mission. 
Something we learned talking with Marshall about these icons in history is that Arizona has a lively drag history. Yes, like drag queens and highly stylized dress-up performances. There were performances happening in towns outside of big cities like Bisbee down south and Globe to the east. Lee Leonard performed drag in Phoenix and Globe dating back to the 1950s, and nationally known names like Ray Bourbon or Julian Eltinge would perform in Phoenix and Tucson. It might be surprising that these little historic mining towns have decades of drag history, but it was being out of the nosy metropolitan area that allowed this to happen. Well, I think a lot of that just comes out of just this, like, you know, you do you. It's like, okay, as long as, as long as you're not making me involve me in it, then it's good. And so I think that's where some, that Wild West mentality kind of comes into play is, okay, you just be yourself. And drag shows are often connected to the places that host them. Bars that were mentioned earlier, plus other famous LGBT plus hotspots of the 1970s and 80s, like The Connection or Casa de Roma, were a home base for famous acts like Miss Ebony. Just as a fun note, Miss Ebony has a sister named Millie Bloodworth, who Marshall noted as a modern-day LGBT plus icon. Miss Millie is an amazing storyteller and has, basically she calls them her children, all these trans youth that kind of come to her. I mean, she was working in the school district and is now kind of as a consultant, kind of talking to the trans issues in education. So, I mean, Miss Millie is definitely an icon. Speaking of modern-day icons, our main guests on this episode can't be left off that list. While Amanda and I set up for the interview, Marshall Shore walked right into the coffee shop from the back door, and his presence filled the entire room. His shoes were the perfect sheen of reflective silver. His shirt is saturated with colorful crustaceans, cephalopods, and fish alike. He sports a Van Dyke-style goatee that is perfectly coiled at the end. Not one hair was out of place. His glasses were circular and adorned with checkerboard print. To top all of that off, he was wearing a face mask with his name on it. His unmistakable look and work in preserving the queer history of Arizona has earned him a place in the conversation forever. If this man isn't an icon, I would like to rewrite the definition. What a great episode for Pride Month. So thank you to Amanda and Keith. And welcome to the team, Keith. So glad to have you. I'm looking forward to more stories about the people who make Phoenix so vibrant. That's all for this week, listeners. Make sure to follow Valley 101 on Twitter at AZC Podcasts and check out the politics show, The Gaggle, where reporters break down local issues and help you keep up with what matters in Arizona's political news. I'm Kayla White signing off for this week. Take care. Thank you.